It's true, I am glad to be here. This uh, is, I preached here just a few weeks ago, and for those of you who were here, you remember that I have a, a history with the church because we were in the same presbytery for many years, and so knew a lot of the elders here as well as uh, Howard Griffith was a, a friend of mine. We're in Second Timothy 3 this morning. Oh, before I do that, I, I feel like I need to make a preemptive apology. I'm pretty sure I'll mess something up uh, in the way that you normally do things this morning. So I always feel like I ought to apologize. They did their best to explain things to me. So it's not uh, Rick's fault. The, uh, we're in Second Timothy. I'll read it in just a second. But in terms of contextual issues, my question is this. As you read the passage, you'll see that Paul is, is trying to encourage Timothy in his ministry, to basically to do his ministry faithfully. My question is, in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, why would Paul say to him, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner? And there, of course, as you know, if you've read through the books, you know there's more where that came from. In chapter 2 of this book, Paul writes, be strengthened in the grace in Christ Jesus. Share in the sufferings as a good soldier. The implications are, Look, you've made a commitment to Jesus as he has to you. So stay with his cause. Don't give in to his fears. Whoops. I need bigger ears. Let's see how often that happens. In both of the letters to Timothy, Paul gives this barrage of, Buck up, son. Be strong. And so the, the appearance in, in our passage of this explanation is of the origin, the purpose of the Bible, and what that reveals is that what shakes the confidence of people today, people outside or, or people inside of the churches, around the world in fact, is also to be called the evangelical world are increasingly convinced that the Bible in fact is not necessary for our lives, maybe even detrimental to them. And so two days ago, I read an article, a man named Dwayne Klein. He said, the prevalent worldview on Scripture has shifted from it's God's book to it's one of God's books to it's a good book, and then to it's a corrupt, unjust, unethical book. And that has led even many in the greater church of Jesus to almost ignore the Bible, except for, of course, a quick morning grazing. That's led, in turn, to struggling to understand the Scriptures in their context, which has led to a disappointment in their usefulness, at least in real life, which has led us to being ashamed of what the Bible teaches. And so here's Paul's answer to Timothy, and of course his answer to us. Starting in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, 
knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by our God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. And so we come to your word as we must and as we want. And we pray that you would use it today. Speak to our hearts as only you can do. We believe in the Holy Spirit because you've taught us, because you've illumined our hearts, because we're here in light of his working. So we come asking you now, O Holy Spirit, to enlighten us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, that's Paul's answer. Leslie Newbigin, if you've heard the name, you don't have to believe everything he wrote, but he has some, some quite interesting stuff. He was a missionary who lived primarily and ministered in India, uh, but always he was outside of Great Britain for his ministry. Uh, from 1936 until roughly 1974, he lived there. And when he retired back home to England, he was shocked, and he was shocked at finding out how his own country had changed in those years. He, he says the signs were clear even then, that is 1974, that it was fast becoming antagonistic to Christianity, at least as taught in the Bible, and the people who sent him, and this was a tragedy, the people who sent him no longer believed what they had sent him to proclaim. In, in his books, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society and Foolishness to the Greeks, he asked his fellow Christians this question, will our identity be shaped by Scripture or by our culture, by the biblical story or the cultural story? And his answer is, of course, Paul's answer to Timothy. And for the same reasons that drove Paul from soon after his conversion until the axe hit his neck, says Nubigen, the gospel is the truth, and therefore it's true for all men. It's the unveiling of the face of him who made all things, from whom every man comes and to whom every man goes. It's the revealing of the meaning of human history. The origin, the destiny of mankind. Jesus, he said, is not only my Savior, he's the Lord of all things, the cause, the cornerstone of the universe. And we shout, Amen, that's right. And we go back to Paul, who does not call Timothy to simply ignore what's going on around him in his world that treats the Bible the very same way that's treated in ours. Instead, he sends Timothy back to the Bible to fully adopt it himself and then to scatter it like seed, that teaching of the Bible throughout his life, throughout his congregation, and so throughout his world. And that's because the Scriptures are sufficient. And my first point, because the Scriptures are sufficient, those who apply the Scriptures find them sufficient in all of life and faith. Those who apply the Scriptures find them sufficient in all of life and faith. So in these verses, 14 and 15, for the second time in this short letter, Paul is holding out this photograph of the words of the, of, uh, sorry, 
uh, in words of the people who are in Timothy's life. People that he knew had stood up for Jesus publicly. People who have been faithful no matter what the cost. And so again, the question, why would Paul do that? I mean, he knows why. We know why. If you've read the Bible at all, you know why. Because there were so many examples in Timothy's life of people who weren't faithful. I mean, I understand when somebody says, there's just so many hypocrites in the church. I'm not going to go there and worship with those people. But it's just an excuse, isn't it? And in fact, it's not even a good one because what they've done is based the fate of their very souls not on whether Jesus is truly the resurrected Christ, but on other people's responses to current events. But still, I understand. And I hate it when a pastor fails and a pastor falls. And we seem to be reading about Sometimes it feels like hundreds. So many that folks don't notice the thousands that remain faithful. But the faithful are all around us, aren't they? They're in our sights today. They're at our elbows. They can't be ignored, or, or at least they shouldn't be. I mean, if Paul walked in here today, he would say the same thing as I've just said to us, because we too as Timothy did, again, they're sitting around us. Here, across the world, people who live and people who die for Jesus. Fred prayed for them. People who weep in silent sorrow at, when the name of Jesus and his church is muddied and shamed like we do. Those failures that we see are to be pitied, are they not? Because they are those of whom Jesus has said it would be better if they had a millstone wrapped around their neck and cast into the sea than to do what they did to the faith of others. But, but so often, the folks who leave Jesus because of them fail to notice that. They fail to notice that for every one of those people, there are hundreds and thousands and millions of faithful Christians around the world, billions over all of time, who stood firm in the faith even when facing death. And why are they remaining faithful is the question that's never asked. Why are they faithful? Instead, they look only at those who are not. A.W. Tozier, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, writes that people who don't think the Bible is practical enough to help them in their daily lives are right. They're right, he says. And he goes on. If by practical they mean that they prefer books that are indifferent to the claims of Christ, the welfare of their own souls, or the interests of the world to come, I hope you're not such people as that. And I know that many of you are not such people as that. So many of you, like Timothy, have had parents who taught you. And you recognize that God has given you that privilege by His grace. And you have refused as you've grown to spit on that grace shown you since you were a child or to spit on Him now. 
Some of you did not have the privilege of growing up in a Christian home. But God, in his mercy and grace, has shown you Jesus, hasn't he? And you are now teaching your children the sacred scriptures. And you're doing so because you know that they have made you in this life and certainly in the next more practical, not less. That is, they have made you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ. You've you've had it revealed to you again, as Nubigen writes. It's there on Calvary that the kingdom... The kingly rule of God won its decisive victory over the powers that contradict it. The cross is not a defeat reversed by the resurrection. It's a victory proclaimed by the resurrection. Thank God. So the answer to why they are faithful is also our answer. They found in Jesus him who is greater than money, than immorality, than self-love, than self-satisfaction. In their heart and mind, those, they, they who love him are content with only Jesus. Because they know that nothing in this world is worth losing their eternal souls over. And even worth one day of dishonoring our precious and holy Savior, Jesus. They will follow Jesus because in him they know that they escape the just punishment of God's wrath, his wrath against sin. And on that day, they will enter into the joy of heaven. It's those people who stand strong, and and you've got a list of their names in your mind and their faces that come to your mind as you remember just as Timothy did and Paul brings to his mind. It's those people who see the glories of our God and King with us. And they push us to be faithful to the end. And so Paul holds them up to Timothy once again. Look, how do you explain them? (laughs) Except by our God and King. So God bless the ministry of each one of you who are, who are taking your stand, who are testifying through every part of your life that, that He is Lord, that He alone is worth living your life for. His words are life and health and peace to your souls. And you're standing and you're saying with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation. And those who apply his word to their lives, don't we find them sufficient for all of life and faith? And so my second point, those who apply the scriptures mature in Christ's likeness. Those who apply the scriptures mature in Christ's likeness. It's verse 16. The Bible, of course, says it's the word of God. It doesn't prove it to some. But Paul doesn't stop to prove it here, does he? Because like so many of us, Timothy's already experienced the power of the Scripture in his life. And if you remember days when you were not converted, then your experience may well have been very similar to mine. One day I read the Bible. It was nice poetry. Had a few interesting thoughts mixed in with some very odd people and stories. But the next day, it was a letter written to me. To me. Even in King James English, it was to me. 
and it spoke directly to my heart and mind. Well, why? Because the same Spirit who inspired these Scriptures gave life to me, opened my heart and mind to the truth of Jesus and to His Word. And so Paul's words to Timothy, remember, you must remember God's the source of this teaching that you have to lay out to this watching world. It's no small thing to say that the Scripture is the Word of God given by God Himself, is it? Not only is Jesus the Word of God and His teaching authoritative, and so is to be heard and obeyed, but the inscripturated teaching of the apostles and the prophets is God-breathed. And so what God has given, and therefore, as He says, it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Well, if you stopped with teaching and reproof and correction, you might say, you know, that's kind of what I hate most from people. I really don't like to be preached at. I don't like to be told I was wrong. I don't like people yelling at me and telling me what I should have done. I can get that from mom. I can get it from dad. I can get it from my boss. I can get it from my teachers. I don't come to church or read the Bible to feel bad. But training in righteousness puts it all together for us, doesn't it? The Bible, under the Spirit's illumination, because of His life within us, provides us with the way to be changed and so to become like Jesus. One thing I noticed in translation is that the root of these words all describe a reasoned approach to the Bible. That is, Timothy's mind is to be engaged The Bible isn't a magic book, but a reasonable book and one that makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense to you, you probably do what I did with my Bible at first. I pick it up sometimes, read a few verses, maybe a chapter or two, and put it down. My problem was, I really wasn't looking for what it was teaching. I was hoping it would help me by telling me exactly what to do in a situation I wasn't sure about, or help me to feel better if I was scared or depressed about something, or that it would just help me feel closer to to God than I did when I picked it up. I didn't ask the questions Paul's words to Timothy bring out. What is this teaching? Where am I wrong in how I respond to this world or how I think about life and faith? What's the corrective truth that God invites me to live out or commands me to follow? And even with that frustration, I kept coming back to the Bible. Well, again, the question comes up, why? Because the Bible interprets the entire story of all things from creation to consummation. And the story of the human race within creation and within the human race, the the story of the people called by God to be bearers of the meaning of the whole. And, And then at the very center, the story of the one in whom God purposes to birth a holy and righteous nation. It's all there, decisively revealed. But more than that, the Spirit has put in all of His people a desire to follow in righteousness and holiness without hypocrisy. And so Joshua teaches us, is taught himself, 
This book of the law shall not depart from your mouths, but you shall meditate on it day or night. And the psalmist acknowledged it, saying, Your word is light to my path. And the word of God is called living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Because by His grace and to His people who have been given His Spirit, God directs us, changes us, builds faith in us, shows us our God, shows us our own hearts, sanctifies us, and leads us to life eternal. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. To hide it in our hearts is to make it part of who we are, part of our thinking, our loves, our actions, which then become our offerings to our God. In this passage, interestingly maybe, you get to see the inside of a preacher's thinking week to week. Timothy and most preachers ask themselves, does what I say change anything? <laughs> and no is usually the implied answer. But yes is God's answer. Because when His Word is the focus of our ministry, not just the parts we like best in His Word or what is described, but instead what is described as the whole counsel of God. With that steady diet, then the preacher is changed. And the congregation is changed more and more together to the image of Christ. And so those who apply the scriptures find them sufficient for life and faith. And those who apply them mature in Christ's likeness. But you see in this passage, Paul goes even further. Those who apply them participate in the works of God. That's verse 17. He's writing to Timothy, so he says, of course, man of God. It's the one who loves God and is called according to his purposes. And he says, may be complete. It means someone who fits exactly for the need of the moment. And the scriptures do that for us. They make us complete for the need of the moment, even when we're not expecting it that need of the moment, or even know that we're meeting that need of the moment. One night, a friend of mine were walking across the drill field at Virginia Tech, and we were talking when we heard this somewhat familiar voice behind us, right up behind us, and he was saying, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on those things. Well, that was very odd at first to us. But he kept going as the words became food and water to our souls. He wasn't criticizing our conversation. He wasn't making a point. He was simply joining himself with the work of God in our lives in a small but... Is it turned out a significant way? See, the Bible energizes your soul. It equips you for every good work. Paul doesn't mean helps us just do nice things. He's describing a life lived for Jesus' glory and by faith. Those are the kind of good works the Scriptures build in us, the works of faith, works by which we serve Christ. Are you a man or woman of God? Well, then the Scripture is building these things into you. You know by now, certainly works don't save us. 
Ephesians says we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, though, doesn't it? And we know that too. comes right after the verses of that gracious gift of redeeming faith. That is, we're born again, born of the Spirit, new creations in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. But we don't need God to do nice things. People who don't have him, people who don't give a hoot about Jesus, do nice things for other people. But we must have him if we will be equipped for the works motivated by faith and works for his glory that we are called to do by his grace. Over the last 50 years that I've been active in a church, I've been told many times that the Bible's no longer relevant to people in our day. One reason people say that is because we're so used to living in a world where biblical ideals like justice and kindness and honor and mercy are expressed by people, in our country at least, as though they're being newly discovered by the new, by the younger generation, people who are smarter and kinder than the older folks who mess things up. But, but really think about it. Those new discoveries of what is right really are the echoes from our past when we were a culture influenced for many years by the teaching of the Bible, even by those who didn't follow it. That was acknowledged by Nietzsche, the German philosopher. He's an atheist who said, the Christian concept of equality of souls before God furnishes the prototype of all theories for equal rights. Luke Ferry, a contemporary French philosopher, a politician, again an atheist, said it was Christianity that overthrew ancient social hierarchies between rich and poor, masters and servants. According to Christianity, we're all brothers on the same level as creatures of God, he said. Richard Rorty, a man who taught at Princeton, UVA, and at Stanford, again, an atheist, said that as an atheist, he cheerfully borrows from Christianity the concept of universal rights. And you remember a few years ago when within days of each other, our governor was deeply embarrassed by a racist picture. Our lieutenant governor had to deal with accusations. He forced himself on women. Our attorney general quickly denounced himself before his past was discovered. Well, why would they do that? It isn't acknowledged but we know why. Their past actions denied what the Bible teaches in Genesis 1. Teachings that there is such a thing as right and wrong. Justice, truth. Those principles aren't found in nature, but are longed for deeply in humanity made in the image of God. And of course, where did the I have a dream speech originate? Well, Dr. King told us it was from the ancient text of Scripture. It's from the ancient text of the Bible that the idea that all people, men and women of every race, are to be respected. You won't find that conclusion from the teaching that nature made us by random chance or humans have evolved and learned to be nice, or at least hopefully are learning. Our crumbling society says the opposite. We're created in the image of God, and so for us, a simple call for mutual respect is not enough. For us, it's love your neighbor as yourself. 
We're against injustice. We're against hate. We're against racism. And we're against killing those born and yet to be born. And we shout, protect them. And those who want to kill them in the womb and outside of it, we say, stop, stop. We join our voices with the work of God when we say, honor all of those who are made in His image. And we say it because the Bible speaks very practically to these issues of equality in life. Just as it also speaks to the issues of diversity and unity, of caring for the poor among us, of the issues of justice and of righteousness. And so Paul, in a society like ours, had various ideas of where the world came from, how we're to live together in it, simply says to Timothy, use what God has given. God will touch hearts with His Spirit-breathed teaching. Believe and preach the Scriptures that reprove and correct wrong thinking and actions. And by the words of God-given Scripture that builds righteousness, be the church of Jesus, so that as His church, we become a community of praise in a world of doubt and skepticism. A community of truth in a pluralistic society. A selfless community that does not live for itself, but is deeply involved in the concerns of the neighborhood in a selfish world. A community prepared to live out the gospel in public life in a world that privatizes all religious claims. A community of mutual respect in a world of individualism. A community of hope in a world of pessimism and of despair about the future. Let's pray. And so, Almighty God, Your Word is beautiful. Your Word is glorious. And we are so grateful to be in a church that holds high the standard of Your Scripture, especially in a world that does not. And so we ask that we would be a people, too, who would not fall into the culture, but a people whose culture of the Scriptures would take over, would be that drink of water so needed in this thirsty world, and that you would bring many to Christ because of it. Use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.